Hello again, and welcome to Smoke and Shadow. I am your host, Victoria Sadowski, and today we are going to talk about Athena again for part two. But before we get into anything, I just want to encourage you guys to hit the follow or subscribe button if you haven't already, as well as to download and share. Certainly, sharing helps grow the show, so please spread that hot goss around, and I thank you for it. Also, feel free to follow me on Instagram and... You can find that in the show notes as well as a link to my Patreon, and if you so choose to donate, thank you very much. Now, let's get on with it. Last time on Smoke and Shadow, we talked about how Arachne was cursed by Athena, and we learned that the goddess's actions correlated to the city of Athens and how it viewed the city of Miletus. So Arachne is also sort of seen as a personification of that city. But we're sort of past the beginning epics to Athena's mythology, and now we're going to move on to the heavy hitters that everyone knows and loves, the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer. And just something to keep in mind for those of you who do not know the Iliad or the Odyssey very well, the Iliad is sort of the precursor to the Odyssey where the Iliad sort of focuses on the Trojan War, whereas the Odyssey focuses on Odysseus's journey, sort of following that epic and his journeys throughout all these mythical islands and whatnot. And we're going to see how Athena dictates a lot of these events. So to start off, a lot of these stories have the intervention of gods, which Homer suggested was due to the relationships between the gods themselves. An example of this can be found at the beginning of the Iliad, where Paris names Aphrodite the goddess of beauty, which angers both Hera and Athena. So once Zeus lifts the ban on interference, Hera and Athena side with Achilles of the Achaeans, since Paris is from Troy, who are enemies of the Achaeans. Each intervention by Aphrodite causes a sudden reaction from other gods and thus incites more intervention. Athena also sides with the Achaeans after Paris steals Helen away from Menelaus, who is one of the war heroes of the Achaeans, as well as one of Athena's favorites, although not as much of a favorite as Ulysses slash Odysseus, though a favorite nonetheless. So being a patroness of Menelaus as a war hero and being the protector of maidens and women, you know, which Helen was, Athena retaliates against the Trojans. Once Zeus gave Athena permission to interfere, she was not just supervising the war, she was on the ground, clad in armor, and ready for the front lines. Athena also approaches one of her favorite mortals, Odysseus, if not, you know, the favorite, as the Achaeans are attempting to flee by ship, and she tells him not to let the Trojans have Helen nor glory. Despite their fear of battle to come, they stay, demonstrating Athena's power over them. But this part also sort of illuminates the relationship or the beginnings of the relationship between Athena and Odysseus because she instills in him the power to sort of cajole his superiors and his cohorts into staying in the fight. Uh, and this also alludes to how persuasive he is as a person, which is a trait that you'll also see during the Odyssey. Also, I don't think I have this in my notes this time, but I mentioned it on uh, part one where... The sculpture of Pallas's head is kicked out of Olympus by Zeus and it rolls down into Troy, where it is then worshipped. Athena then has Odysseus steal it because 
she doesn't want her enemies in war worshipping her best friend whom she killed. Anyway, whilst the fight rages on, Athena not only fights alongside them, but she is said to have darted from one commander and war hero to another. Her encouraging words made their lust for victory stronger than their fear, and so they gained headway in the fight. When concerning Achilles, Athena almost does the opposite and tries to rein him in since he is impulsive and hot-headed in war. And, of course, we won't really be talking about Achilles, but we all know that impulsiveness doesn't really get him far in the war. So, Athena also favors throughout the war people like Diomedes and Ajax the Great, who, unlike Odysseus, who's more seen as a high-ranking soldier who does more advising work through Athena. He's sort of a conduit for Athena. Whereas Diomedes was the commander of 80 Argive ships and was a respected leader during the Trojan War. So he was doing more along the lines of like commanding legions, whereas Odysseus and Achilles were more sort of on the ground. Achilles being sort of a more hot-headed knight. And Odysseus was more seen as someone who was good at rhetoric and good at influencing people rather than just commanding and occasionally doing side jobs for Athena whilst Troy was under siege, because why not? Athena also tricks the Trojan archer Pandarus, who launches an arrow at Menelaus. Some of you might be thinking, why would she do that? I thought she liked Menelaus. Well, she wasn't trying to kill him, and the arrow did not kill him but instead enrages him for war and is one of the reasons the truce between the Trojans and the Achaeans is broken. This is also, I believe, one of the few cases where Athena and Poseidon are on the same side because Poseidon also went against the Trojans in this war. Finally getting his head out of his ass. To sort of go back in time a little bit to when Diomedes was a wee youngin, shortly after the slaying of his father, Athena's favorite warrior at the time was a man named Tydeus, and when he was dying, she wanted to offer him a magic elixir, which she obtained through Zeus. The elixir in question would allow him to become immortal. However, she withdrew the intended privilege in apparent disgust when Tydeus gobbled down the brains of the enemy who had wounded him in battle. So, yeah, gluttony in war was not really her thing. If you showed that, you lost your privileges. You lost your favor. You lost respect in her eyes. And yeah, Tydeus died. So after the death of his father, Diomedes and the other sons of those who were slain by warriors of Thebes vowed to seek revenge on Thebes. And this began Diomedes' sort of climb into naval power. And this catches the eye of Athena, which makes him one of her favorites. However, again, nobody can top Odysseus, apparently, because he's just, he's just the best boy. He's the best boy. Also, just to backpedal a little bit, nine years after the start of the Trojan War, the Achaean army sacks Chrys, or Chrysi. There were a lot of different pronunciations that I found, so I'm not sure with that one. During the siege of the city, Agamemnon steals two maidens as war prizes for him and Achilles. 
However, this doesn't really go well since one of the maiden's father, Chryses, offers a ransom for his daughter. However, Agamemnon does not. He doesn't want to give her up uh, because, yeah, this is why this is why these guys aren't Athena's favorite, I'm pretty sure, because Odysseus isn't swiping ladies. He has a beautiful wife that he wants to go home to. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Although he does get seduced later, but we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Sadly for the Achaeans, Chryses is a priest of Apollo and prays to him for the release of his daughter, and thus a plague breaks out among the Achaeans. When Agamemnon finds out where the plague is coming from, he reluctantly releases the maiden back to her father, and then also asks Achilles if he would return the maiden that he was gifted back to the city, and Achilles is pissed and decides, I'm going to pout and I'm going to go sit in a war tent and not fight for the rest of the war. So the Achaeans are kind of fucked right now because Achilles is their, like, war horse in a sense. He dominates the battlefield, and so without him, the Achaeans are in rough shape. Zeus also joins the Trojan cause, and the Achaeans end up getting pushed back to the shores, and I believe some of their naval forces are destroyed, leaving soldiers stranded on the beaches of Troy, which is not good. Eventually, Achilles feels bad about leaving the battlefield, and he worries for his comrades. So he devises a plan for his dear friend Patroclus to wear his armor into battle, which doesn't end well, and Patroclus dies at the hands of Hector. Achilles then, fully enraged at his friend's death, rejoins the battle. His number one priority is to seek out Hector and kill him, so he does just that and heads for the walls of Troy, where Hector's camp is set on the outside of the walls, which, you know, cocky move, dude. Good job. Because he sees Achilles and he flips, and they all run for the city walls, but of course, seeing as how many Trojans died and knowing that Hector told them to camp on the outside of the walls, he then stays on the outside of the walls and decides to fight Achilles. It doesn't go well. Um, he runs away like a little bitch, and Achilles chases him around the city walls three times until Athena tells Hector, don't worry, get back in there, guy. You can do it. And then Achilles just kills Hector, and victory goes to the Achaeans. But of course, we all know what happens to Achilles, and if you don't, you don't know what your Achilles heel is. So, <laughs> Google that, please. And also, very important, the Trojan horse was a strategy that was, one might say, woven by Athena and given to Odysseus and Apias to carry out. And I have to point out, the relationships between the gods during this is just so chaotic. Because, you know, Poseidon joins the war, but he's really not trying to because he doesn't want to piss off Zeus before Zeus, you know, unleashes the floodgates. Hera and Athena made an alliance because they were pissed off about what Paris did. And Aphrodite siding with Paris because she's like, he called me beautiful, oh my gosh. So she keeps saving him. Apollo, Apollo, I think, ends up kind of he's on the side of the trojans for a while but then i think when he's confronted with going to war with poseidon he changes sides and then is rebuked by artemis his sister and when she does this 
Hera does something, I forget what it is, but it makes Artemis cry and run off the battlefield, so Hera's a bad bitch, we don't mess with her, but at the same time, Hera and Zeus are not on the same side of this war for the most part. Zeus, I think, switches sides like twice. Also, before the fight of Achilles and Hector, Hector pleads with Achilles saying, whoever dies, the winner shall treat their body with respect. And Achilles says, fuck no, and then just dives into battle and kills him. Because <laughs> Achilles, Achilles is a special boy. We love Achilles, kind of. He's a little nuts. He's a, he's a wild boy. If the goddess of war and strategy constantly has to rein you in, you wild. You wild, son. I actually posted on Instagram a painting of Achilles that just really drives home the vibe of Achilles. Like his eyes are just like, you know when someone just does something and you're like quietly trying not to kill them and it's that look it's that look in his eyes that he's about to snap and go check it out it really just it really just frames his whole state of mind all right and now we're going to move right along to the odyssey the odyssey takes place right after the end of the trojan war and hones in more on odysseus and his life rather than him being part of a bigger picture Odysseus' journey serves as a sort of extension to the butting of heads between Poseidon and Athena because Odysseus blinds the Cyclops Polyphemus, who also happens to be Poseidon's son. From then on out, Poseidon holds a grudge against Odysseus and decides to make his journey life-threatening, at least, because he wants to kill Odysseus, but... Athena is like, no, 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 he's got to go home. He's got a beautiful wife to get back to. He's got shit to do. No, he's got to go home. And we all know Athena wins, so. During the Iliad, Athena has a sort of group of favorites that she champions throughout the war. However, by the end of the war, her main favorite is Odysseus because of how he carried himself throughout the war and how he advised other people. And so by this point, she's just like... I'm going to just worry about this guy for a while. I'm going to see how he does. I need to get him home. Essentially, the Odyssey illustrates that Athena now favors Odysseus the most. And this is her way of proving it by helping him through this journey. However, also, she's kind of dictating it at the same time. <laughs> and making him go through certain hardships that he might not want to go through. But when Athena decides your fate, there's no real arguing that, and Odysseus seems to know that. During the Odyssey, Athena served as the divine guide for Odysseus and his son Telemachus, and aids them in certain trials and tribulations that are mainly brought upon by Poseidon. The things Athena did during the Odyssey are things that most gods, well, when they pick a favorite, I guess they all do this, but the gods don't really do this too often, where she wasn't just advising him or giving him guidance or occasional help with, you know, giving him armor. She would disguise herself as him or Telemachus or their mentors or whomever to get them ahead. So she participated. She would show up in front of them in a manifestation, give them advice. She would pose as allies she would post to other people as them she did everything for them and it also wasn't just athena 
uh, we'll talk a little bit about it, but Hermes even tries to help Odysseus a few times, a few times, and honestly, without the gods, Odysseus would have been fucked in so many ways. Something I found when I was doing research, I don't know if I mentioned this in part one, I really hope I didn't. God, I hope I didn't. If I did, I'm cutting this out. If I didn't, here we go. The 1997 film of the Odyssey demonstrates the dynamic between Odysseus and Athena very well because there's a moment in the movie during the midst of the journey where you can see how foreboding and auspicious Athena can be when advising him on things. And in this scene, she comes to him and starts telling him, this person's to this, this person's to that. You need to, you need to rein in your guys a little bit. And he's given her some, you know, like, everything's fine. Like, we're doing great. And uh, it just goes south a little bit. She really tries to nail home. She's in charge and just flat out is like, I wanted you on this journey. I wanted you here. I wanted you to experience all these things. And he just has a very sobering moment to himself where the actor's expression just goes kind of blank. And it's a little foreboding to be told that you have no say in your life. Even if you respect and adore the goddess who is orchestrating your fate, that's terrifying because your life is in the hands of their temperament. And I feel like this movie just really got that across very well of even Odysseus in his admiration for Athena takes a moment to be like, huh, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that. And again, as I mentioned before, Athena and Hermes are sort of in cahoots here. Since every time Odysseus gets captured by someone, Hermes is the one to convince them to let Odysseus go. Whereas Athena does not outright save him, but sets a path or fate for him to follow and removes certain obstacles as he goes. But she doesn't swoop in and save him. She wants him to show what he's capable of. So she's not the one to do that. Well, okay, she does it once towards the end of his journey when he really just needs that last bit of help. But that's like the only time she really does that. For the most part, she's orchestrating. She's not swooping in. Similar to the events that happened in the Iliad, Athena for the most part oversees and embeds herself within the events of the Odyssey and her more feminine aspects as a goddess are not really shown. So when Odysseus's wife, Penelope, is weaving, Athena doesn't care. Like, she's not involved at all. The only times Athena ever comes to Penelope is to assure her that Odysseus and her son are fine and safe, but, you know, she's also sheltering Penelope from the fact that Odysseus is getting down with other women. And granted, it's framed in a way where it's not, he's not consenting, and it's a mythical being that's kind of seducing him. Not his fault, but he was on, like, Circe's island for, what, seven years? So, hmm, I don't know. I don't know. Up to your interpretation, I guess. However, I have to point out the hilariousness of how to pronounce Circe, because... Sounds like, you know, Cersei Lannister. That's how it's kind of pronounced in some parts of the world, I guess. At least the British pronunciation, which is... Cersei. But the American version, as always, does not disappoint. And I love it so much. Cerse. What? <laughs> Cerse. <laughs> kind of like it. I kind of like it. 
But yeah, I believe the correct pronunciation is Circe. And she is a sort of enchantress, a minor goddess whose parents change depending on the variations of her folklore. She, along with the nymph Calypso, are the main... Main? They're sort of antagonists within Odysseus's journey. Definitely more seen as obstacles where Odysseus eventually has to rise up and do something about it with the help of the gods. So, for instance, when Odysseus tries to escape from Circe, Hermes has to give him an herb. I think it's Molly? Molly? I don't... I didn't write this down, I'm sorry. But it's supposed to help him fight off Circe's enchantments over him. After they escape from Circe, Odysseus and his men land on the island of Thernicia, which he didn't want to go to, but his men insisted. Zeus then launches a storm that prevents them from leaving, and they deplete their food. Now thoroughly starving, his men go hunting despite the warnings of Circe and kill one of Helios' sacred cattle. Helios then tells Zeus to punish them and everyone except for Odysseus drowns and dies. Life hack: when the king of the gods doesn't really like you, become the favorite of his favorite and therefore you won't die. Brilliant guy, really, Odysseus, really. He then washed ashore on the beaches of Ogygia, where he is then seduced by Calypso. Meanwhile, the gods are trying to figure out what to do with Odysseus. They're like, do we help him? Do we leave him there? What's going on? Athena decides, I'm going to go help his son instead. So she goes and does that. But it also sort of helps prepare things for when Odysseus comes home. So this is all part of her scheme. This is a bigger plan she's got. So she's ignoring Odysseus for now, but she's preparing to get rid of Penelope's suitors in a way with the help of his son, Telemachus. So again, because Athena is Zeus's favorite, Zeus then kind of just goes along with her plan and tells Hermes to go get Odysseus out of that situation. Hermes goes and does that. He gets him a ship. Odysseus starts heading home and Poseidon just ruins it he just creates another storm and then there's another shipwreck and Odysseus washes ashore on somebody else's land and the cycle repeats but this time I think this is the only time Athena actually swoops in and helps him and he winds up in the custody of the Phaeacians who show him around to the palace and they're like come on guy like come come hang with us and then he's like, I'm Odysseus. And they're like, oh, what? Wait. And I'm assuming, I'm assuming Poseidon thinks he's dead because he's not paying attention. These people worship Poseidon and he's not paying attention. And they're like, we'll send this guy home and we'll make him rich as shit because this is a cool dude. Remember, Athena and Poseidon were on the same side of that war. They were both on the side of the Achaeans. So they think Odysseus is cool. They don't realize Poseidon has a grudge against him, so they are gung-ho about bringing Odysseus to Ithaca, and they do. But only after Odysseus tells them the sweet deets on his turbulent journey home. He then awakens on the shores of Ithaca, and Athena assures him that he has returned home because, I don't know, maybe they got him too drunk. I don't know. But he just wakes up and he's home. And Athena's like, you're home. And he's like, oh, cool. And she's like, hold on. You have to dress like a beggar. And he's like, why? And she's like, just just do it. Just, just do what I tell you. 
And so he does. And he roams about Ithaca in disguise, sort of checking in on the culture and the city and how everything's been running in the past 20 years because he's been gone 20 years. He's been gone 20 years. That's like a lot of lifetime. And as he's sort of doing this, his son eventually comes home from Sparta. Odysseus seeks Telemachus out to say, hi, I'm home now. And he's like, oh my god, we need to kill all of mom's suitors. And Odysseus is down and they're ready to conspire. They return home separately, of course, with Odysseus still in disguise to try to get a feel of what the home life is like after 20 years. And he's found out by his housekeeper who recognizes one of his scars. Athena then intervenes and tells the housekeeper to not out him to his wife, and she's like, okay. The next morning, Penelope then tells the suitors she's going to challenge them by making them compete for her hand in an archery competition using Odysseus's bow. Odysseus, of course, takes part in the competition and wins, and once he does, he reveals himself to his wife and proceeds to kill all the suitors. A whole fight breaks out, but still, he and his son win, and Odysseus is reunited with his wife, and they lived happily ever after. Now, Romanization. The goddess Athena then becomes the goddess Minerva when... Greco-Roman culture starts to develop. As Romanization continues, she's more affiliated with wisdom rather than war or fate, similar to Freya of Norse mythology. This is because, mainly, Roman culture was far more masculine in nature, and the matriarchal versus patriarchal era of Greece had passed, and now was mainly patriarchal. So, still associated with war, but not as much as she had been. And the whole weaponizing her iconography for the sake of a male-dominated society just really drove home, you know, objectification of women on a divine scale. Awesome. Thanks, Yahweh. Thanks for that. Speaking of which, Minerva also then became Saint Minerva and was embedded in Christian folklore in a sense. But from what I can tell, mainly just used as a symbol of honor and strategy and wisdom and all the good things and you see it everywhere if you're living under a romanized society which what most of the world has by now it's kind of insane due to her affiliation with wisdom and war minerva symbolized military prowess and honor in romanized societies therefore the united states where the current U.S. Medal of Honor has a profile depiction of Minerva. So, yeah, still, it's still something we do. We're still doing it. But it's just funny because now in, you know, United States culture and a little bit of Western Europe culture, the Christian aspect with these pagan symbols is just kind of normal but also very weird it's very weird that we just yeah i don't know i don't know like zeus wasn't enough like zeus wasn't enough of big dick swinging energy we had to replace it with yahweh and then no goddess ever had a fucking shrine again like jesus i mean 
Jesus, leave Jesus out of it. He was a good boy. And, you know, one could make the argument that there are multiple cathedrals built in the name of St. Minerva, which don't know what they are, haven't looked that deep, haven't gone down that rabbit hole yet, but one could make that argument. But then there's the potential rebuttal of it's not the same. They're two very different religions. One's polytheistic, one's monotheistic. So in one context, Athena is a goddess. She has autonomy from other gods. She has her own independence. And because she's Zeus's favorite, she gets away with a lot. So to then become a saint under Yahweh is just a completely different context. And it's very strange because the entire identity of the goddess is removed. It's just used as symbolism to strengthen Yahwism, in a sense. And to go back a little bit to the Iliad and the Odyssey, I just find it hilarious because the gods are also just creating so much chaos <laughs> by their own squabbling. And... Humans are dying for it, which, of course, you know, mythical romanticization, whatever. But it's just so dramatic. It's There's so much drama. Literally, Hera made Artemis cry and walk off the battlefield. Have you guys ever been in that situation in a sport where you get into a fight with a teammate or, like, someone from the opposing team and someone ends up crying and, like, walking off the fucking court? Just imagine that, but like gods, like that's literally what's going on. And Hera and Athena are like, we're winning. We're winning. And because Athena is on the side of the Achaeans, you know Nike is too. Nike and Athena kind of go hand in hand sometimes. Um, still do. There's a lot of depictions with Athena and Nike together. There's a few depictions similar to that of old Grecian ones where Athena is sort of on a titanous level and Nike is standing in the palm of her hand. So when Athena sides with the Achaeans, it's kind of already set in stone, which is why the Iliad and the Odyssey, you kind of get a sense for what's going to happen because there's this looming concept within the writing that you already know what's going to happen because fate has already been set and it's been set by Athena. Which is funny because Zeus, the king of the gods, he has to keep checking in with the fates, the three fates. And some of the time, not all of the time, some of the time they report back to him things that Athena's already set into motion. So the fates keep track of what's happening in lives that are going to be lost because of events unfolding. But Athena starts the snowball a lot of the time. She gets things going from the beginning stages. Again, with the Odyssey, Odysseus is going through a bunch of things and Athena's not really paying attention. Hermes is paying attention because she's busy guiding his son who's trying to make a name for himself in Sparta and avoiding being killed by these suitors. And her preemptively doing this sort of gets the ball rolling for when Odysseus and Telemachus reunite. Also, just the way that the gods take their anger out on each other is definitely done through the people. Which, you know, gods are just personifications of culture. So when Paris names Aphrodite the most beautiful, Athena then, you know, 
wants to kill him. But every time Aphrodite intervenes, Athena doesn't then take it out on Aphrodite. She continues to take it out on Paris. And she does that by using her own favorite mortals to sort of do that for her. So yeah, that is my two-part series on the goddess Athena. And now, sources. The Greek Myths, Book 1 and 2 by Robert Graves. The Mycenaeans by Louis Schofield. Homer's The Iliad and the Odyssey, because, you know, that's public domain. You can get it anywhere. Gods and Men in the Iliad and Odyssey by Wolfgang Kullman. A 2019 Hoffman Lecture, Translating the Odyssey Again, How and Why by Emily Wilson. Some spark notes, and of course, a little help from Wiki. So, if you're still here, thank you for listening. Be sure to hit the subscribe or follow button on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, feel free to follow me on Instagram. And in the show notes, you can find a link to my Patreon. If you choose to donate, thank you so very much. And with that, I will see you guys on the next one.